Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound Podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. You are in store for an exciting and informative episode today. Larry the Duck Dunn joins me in conversation as we discuss the music industry of yesterday and today. Larry is part of the infamous team of DJs at WLIR 92.7 FM radio. WLIR was a radio station that dared to be different and was responsible to introduce the talking heads, Blondie, Ramones, Patti Smith, and U2 to America. Larry the Duck Dunn continues his journey in the music industry as a returns as a DJ with the WLIR format on Sirius XM Radio. Come, join the conversation. A part of the daily routine of many Long Islanders has come to an end. Those who regularly tuned in to 92.7 on their radio dial to listen to the station WLIR will no longer find that station broadcast. In my quest to discover great music and learn the backstories of the wellspring of talent on Long Island, I had to find the experts, the people who work the trenches in the music industry. My guest today is Larry Duck Dunn. He has an extensive media background that began as a DJ at the infamous radio station WLIR, of which I was a great fan. For over 20 years, his experience runs the gamut from radio to cable to newspapers, and now as an announcer on Sirius XM. As the fourth vice chair of the Long Island Music and Entertainment Hall of Fame, Larry knows the wellspring of which I speak. Hey, welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast, Larry. So great to have you here. Steve, it's an honor. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, as I was thinking about, first I'll I'll give uh, the audience a little bit of a backstory. I met Larry at the grand opening of the Long Island Music uh, and Entertainment Hall of Fame in Stony Brook. And after 16 or so more years, uh, they finally have a home. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, it was really, it was a zoo. It was crazy, wasn't it? What a great night. And uh, what a great night, packed to the gills, and so many famous people from Long Island and abroad. And I tell you, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I met so many great people who be, who, who became guests on the show. So, uh, And Larry is a result of that, so thank you for being here. Thank you, Steve. It was and, a great night, um, thank you for having me. Sure. So, you know, and I'm I'm speaking truth in that as I get older, I was finding myself in the rut of listening to music that I loved from the 70s. I grew up in the 70s and, and obviously Laurel Canyon, Neil Young, James Taylor. I can go on and on. There's a lot of great music out there. But I didn't want to be sitting and reminiscing all the time. I wanted to discover new music. And uh, so I started the podcast and I got to know that, man, we really have so much talent here on Long Island, both historically and what's happening today. It's really, really kind of amazing. So um, anyway, so Larry, just to give you real back, and Larry, you can jump into this. uh, Larry began his career uh, with WLIR as a DJ. And if I recall the time frame, I think you were a junior in college at St. John's. And uh, pick it up from there, Larry. Yeah, so I had a... My mentor was Dr. Jack Franzetti, and I'm on the board of the College of Professional Studies for the last 18 years at St. John's, so I still give back to them. And he granted Mm -hmm. an internship, and I always said, I taught at St. John's for one year. I actually taught radio announcing, and I said, you know, intern where you want to work. So if you want to work at ESPN, intern at ESPN. And I wanted so much to work at LIR. And that internship got my foot in the door. 
because all the DJs, when I finally went on the air, were like basically 10 years older than me, with the exception of like Bob Cranes, Bob Waugh. But it was actually a really good learning experience for me because I went through the internship, and the day I finished my internship, I got an A, (laughs) and then they hired me. They hired me in the music department, then the production department. I I learned editing and radio production. And then they hired me to finally go on the air. Right after I graduated, I became a part-time DJ. And I remember I was scared crap, really. I, my first song <laughs> on the air, and this is before we changed the format at LAR, was Neil Young, Hey, Hey, My, My, Into the Black, the electric version, because oh, I had wow. no idea where my radio career was going to go. And we sure. were never hired for voice. We were hired for music knowledge because you couldn't fake that, right, and fun. Mm-hmm. And I had this dreaded Long Island accent, which I never would have been hired at any other radio station in the world. And yet I still went through two years of speech therapy at the Roslyn Speech and Hearing Center, which I don't even know if it still exists on my own dime because my parents, mm. we had seven I, I'm the oldest of seven. So my mom had seven kids in eight years. All I remember is diapers growing up all the time. So my parents couldn't afford to send me to college. So I worked full-time in a pharmacy. I was a, ph- a pharmaceutical technician at Mardell's Pharmacy mm. in Hempstead, right up the street from LIR. So I would bounce back and forth from internship to pharmacy, internship to pharmacy, you know, and then eventually I graduated and then went full-time on the air. But uh, that was my learning experience, and I grew up pretty quickly. But also the fact that I had such great DJs and talent around me, I learned so much from them because I was still coming out of that college radio period at St. John's. I actually did one year of college radio at New York Tech, because Bob Cranes and Bob Wall were respectively the program director and the uh, the music director. And they said, hey, we got a shift that's open Wednesday night from 6 to 10 p.m. You want to do the show? And I'm like, I'll do anything just to get myself better in radio. At that time, New York sure. Tech was the background for Cablevision on Channel 14. So if you went to What's On Today, the radio station was the background. So it was carried like a cable radio stations throughout Nassau and Suffolk. So we had a good listenership. Mm. So that was kind of the prelude to me going on in the air at LIR. You know what? You, you bring up a good point. Um, I dated a girl from Michigan, and uh, this is down in Florida, and she used to bust my you-know-whats about my New York accent. And, you know, when you go out of state, you realize how heavy it can be. And uh, I'm in sales uh, for my day job, and you work on that because when I was in different states, man, there's an intimidation factor that a New Yorker has on other people. <laughs> and I worked hard to try to correct my uh, pronunciation and my diction to a point I got fairly good at it when people would ask you where you're from. I'd say I'm from New York. And they said, no, 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 where, where are you really from? And then I would turn it back on and, and they'd go, oh, yeah, you're from New York. You know, coffee, uh, soda. <laughs> You know, all that, all those words. Or boss at Bada. 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 <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting so, because... So you, you start... Yeah, go ahead. Out, yeah. No, no, no. So, go ahead. Yeah, because on SiriusXM, I'm coming up on my 20th anniversary. Believe it, on Memorial Day weekend. And most of wow. the announcers are from Los Angeles. Wow. So I'm the only one from New York and from Long Island. So I broadcast from Long Island since covid you know, shipped all the equipment to my house. So this is my SiriusXM home studio where I'm actually broadcasting to you on your podcast right now. And the thing is that every now and then I hear it. It slips out. I go, oh, there's my Long Island accent again. Well, I am from the island of Long. 
I'm a skinny Irish Catholic kid from Brooklyn, right? right. Living in Massapequa Park, New York, broadcasting <laughs> around the world in Massapequa Park, New York. Not that the village here is ever going to throw me a freaking parade or give me a plaque, but <laughs> it's actually um, it's a nice local story. But Massapequa is so historic, right, for the Baldwins, Joey Buttafuoco, Jerry Seinfeld, the Stray Cats, yeah, right, uh, Steve Gutenberg. So I feel like I'm in this little clique of Massapequa. This little dot on a map, but this is the Long Island Sound, right? So it's all about Long Island for me. Right, right. And then uh, you also you also have yes. the Stray Cats uh, as well as – I'm trying to think of the female singer. Uh, tiny little gal from Massapequa. Oh, um, she went to Massapequa yeah. High School. Well, you know who I'm so, thinking about. So my – Love is oh, a Pat Benatar. So Pat grew up in Lindenhurst, right? Pat Benatar. Yeah, Debbie Gibson grew up in Merrick. Right, right. Went to high school with my sister Mary at Calhoun mm-hmm. High School. <laughs> yeah, so you had a, a real wealth. Wow. You know, and you spoke about the Long Island Music and Entertainment Hall of Fame. So you think about the bastion of talent, you know, on 120 miles of, you know, from Brooklyn, Queens, Nassau, and Suffolk. All genres, right? All genres. Dating back, you know, decades. You know, that's what we celebrate at the Hall of Fame in Stony right. Brook. It was a great night. Thank you. Yeah. So it's what's what's interesting. Uh, I did a little bit of homework before uh, we got on the air with Larry the past couple of days, and I watched the uh, documentary "Dare to Be Different" about the WLIR radio station. Now, I knew the radio station in high school, and I really enjoyed it, but I didn't really know about the demise of the radio station. But what I found so intriguing, and I think it plays into maybe what's happening in the market today, and you could probably speak to that way better than I can. One of the segments in the documentary talked about how you changed, I think it was in 82, you changed formats and you became a, uh, a progressive radio station and you really depended upon uh, what was coming from the UK and England, uh, where you actually went to the airport to get, get the, uh, uh, the records and, and play them and, and, the road to discovery led to really you guys finding U2 and getting airplay for U2 uh, as one of the famous bands uh, among many uh, that would have not played in a regular radio station. And, and I was thinking about this before we came on. I was thinking about Spotify and all these different platforms that will have the uh, AI to figure out, oh, if you like this and you're going to like that and you're going to like this. And I really looked back to what you guys as pioneers accomplished at WLIR, where you were the AI. You figured out, hey, what was really good and what was playing. But you got the audience feedback and you got such a great fan base. Uh, it was just kind of amazing to me. You know, yeah, it's a, great, story. it's a great point you make, Steve, because it was kind of like analog AI as opposed to digital AI, right? Because it came from the gut. <laughs> Uh, Ellen did a great job, you know, right. with the movie. It took seven years to film that. And, you know, Dennis narrates a lot of it. We wow. all play ourselves. I guess I'm one of the four main in, in today and like 30, 40 years ago. As as Dennis's music director, being the music director of LIR really was the ultimate goal for me because that's where I became the human filter. So what you speak to was what Rough Trade Records mm-hmm. did in London. We, we signed a deal with them in London. Dennis went there and got the deal done. And every Thursday, to your point, there was a box that was shipped from Heathrow to JFK. And my staff would meet the, the plane, bring the box to me. I would start listening it um, on Thursday night. And then, you know what happened? It was a Friday morning. I called Dennis. because, And I just found this in my collection. I don't know if you can see this, right? This is the original oh, test yeah. pressing of Mars Pump Up the Volume. And when I got it, 
Wow. First of all, I was spinning at the Malibu on Saturday night. I called Dennis and said, let's test it in the club and see how it goes. Now, you got to realize I'm live on the air at the Malibu, but I'm also live on the dance floor. There was no delay. There were no commercials, no bathroom break, nothing. And I put this on, and the place went nuts. <laughs> and I said, Dennis, we have something here. Then on Sunday night, I did an import show called Off the Boat. Played it on Off the Boat. The phones lit up. And on right. Monday morning, we put it on the air. We had to drop the call letters into the song because we didn't want other radio stations, which, by the way, is illegal to do, rebroadcast someone else's signal. We had to drop <laughs> the call letters, the LIR call letters in the song so no one would try to copy it. And this is just one example. I just found it last wow. night because I was cleaning up my records. I also cleaned up. I found this, too. I found the acetate. I was invited into Master Disc. So Master Disc is the post-production process of when you record a record, and Bob okay. Ludwig is a friend of mine, but I've never seen a record being mastered before. And you smell the acetate on this. This is actually more than this from Roxy Music. I was invited into the session, and I'm a young DJ. Oh. In 19, it's actually, I dated it too. It's March 29, 1982. They had just finished the vocal at four o'clock in the morning. I walk in the room, and there's Brian Ferry, there's Rhett Davis, the producer of Avalon, Bob Clearmountain, the engineer of Avalon, me and Bob. And I'm like in awe. And Brian was spent because he just finished his vocal and sure. he's holding his head in his hand. And what happened, they did the first test pressing, the acetate, and it was an imperfection. So they gave this to me. Brian signed it. And then they <laughs> got the second acetate. Wow. So, you know, I start finding these things and the memories come back because I, re I realized that we were breaking new music. We never said we were a new wave station. And we made that clear. Max makes it clear in the movie. We were a new music station. That's what we wanted to be. And that was engaging to the audience. So the AI part, right, when you had Screamer of the Week, right, people would call and vote. That was the best news song of the week. Right. That was kind of the AI. But the AI for us was our gut. We either knew it was a hit or it was like doing A&R on radio, artisan repertoire, right? And, in fact, I almost went to be an A&R yep. guy. I actually interviewed with Clive Davis, and I actually found the rejection letter wow. I got from Clive. <laughs> saying basically, hey, you pick some, you know, it's kind of like a trick question. When you go on these interviews as an A&R guy or a potential A&R guy, they say, bring six songs that you mm -hmm. think will be a hit, right? So that's a trick question because you're bringing wow. songs that potentially could be, and that could make or break the interview. So, but I spent 90 minutes with Clive Davis and it was wonderful, wow. but I didn't get the gig. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of a scene that I saw that in some Motown movie where, um, it was the Four Tops or, or whatever. They would they would do their song in front of the catalog mm. of artists, and they would vote to see you know if it's gonna if it's gonna be a hit. And now you have a radio station who uh, is looking at their competition, and you're a tiny you're a tiny wattage radio station in the scheme of the New York market, but you're in the right. New York market, which is the center of the world as far as I'm concerned particularly Brooklyn, I think, is the center of the world right now when it comes to music. And there you try something different, and then, boom, you strike gold in, in what you're introducing. It's, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. And then if you go full circle or fast forward and you look at how music is presented today, um, hey, when you and I were kids, we got an album. I mean, I'd go down to Pergaments in Levittown, and you can get a 45 for like 25 or 50 cents, or you buy an album, and you sat down with that album, and you played both sides of that album, and you digested that music, you know? But now it's, it's different. I don't know if people don't, you know, of the artists I've spoken to, 
like, no, no, it, you know, it's easier to put out an EP with three to five songs that are probably really good and then keep making the uh, what I call ice cream cones to keep the audience you're trying to build engaged. And then there's a whole social media. Yeah, I think, you know, Billy Idol released a four so song EP called The Cage, right? So that followed up a four song EP from the previous year. Squeeze just put out a five song EP called Food for Thought, which was really their first new song in five years, but it was really meant to raise money in the UK for those that have food insecurity. So the EP concept has kind of come back mm. a little bit. You know, for us at LIR, I think one of the brilliant moves that Elton did was moving the tower from Garden City to the North Shore Towers because the North Shore, okay. North Shore Towers was the second highest point on Long Island. And in FM, you want height more so okay. than power. I mean, you want power, but 3,000 watts off the North Shore Towers. So we went into Brooklyn to Queens, boomed into Westchester. We were the number one station in Stanford, Connecticut. So I think that gave us a lot more hmm. of a New York presence so that – we were identified as really a trendsetter. Now, we, there were seven of us, if you think about it, right? We called them the Magnificent Seven. You had the K, you had KROQ in Los Angeles, K-Rock, 91X in San Diego, XRT in Chicago, Live 105 in San Francisco. You had FNX in Boston, LIR, HFS in Washington, D.C., and we were breaking it. But we were all looking at each other. You know, we always looked at K-Rock, and I'm sure K-Rock looked at us, and we all shared. I, I used to go on the air sure. on the morning show with Poor Man, who was the overnight D DJ on Carol Q. We'd put each other on the air once a week just to talk music. Like, what are you guys seeing? What are you playing? You know, and mm. that was this is in real time, you know, across a few time zones. And that's how unique it was. I think there was a camaraderie, I think, amongst all of us because we were kind of like battling the gorillas that were the 50,000-watt radio station, mm. but we were creating the excitement. And we couldn't give a shit, sorry, about ratings. Yeah, we couldn't care <laughs> no, about ratings fine. because it didn't matter. Right. If we said to 8,000 people show up at 8 o'clock tonight, 8,000 people would show up, you know, because people were so loyal and they would just move to wherever we told them to go. If it was a club, an auto dealer that was having a grand opening, whatever – you know, this was a loyal, active audience, and I think radio stations would have killed for that because at that point, the local advertisers, right. they couldn't care less about ratings. They just wanted results, and if they saw people show up, they showed up. Sure. If we said we would be there for a grand opening of a Taco Bell, they showed up. So interesting times. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know it's interesting. So when they switched the antenna – by the way, uh, the towers that uh, Larry's talking about are right on the Nassau-Queens right. border, and, and they're huge towers. You can't miss them off uh, Northern State when it turns into Grand Central uh, Parkway. When did that happen? Did the change in the uh, format happen first and then the antenna move? <laughs> it's funny you say that because the format happened or, or first, and what happened was our tower in Garden City was on federal property. It was on the U.S. Post Office's property, and they kept telling us, you got to go. You got to." They almost cut the line on us. <laughs> and we had to move the antenna temporarily to the top of 175 Fulton Avenue in Hempstead. So for a brief time, we were in beautiful right. downtown Hempstead on the seventh floor with an antenna. And that was kind of depressing because our signal was de deplenished until we moved to the top of the North Shore Tower. Right. At that point, you didn't have to build an antenna. You were on top of a large apartment building, right? So you didn't need a stick going up. And then there were, there's like a lot of cab companies and stuff up there, too. So you're right. We were right on the Queens border. So technically, we're in Queens. So technically, we were a hybrid Long Island, New York City radio station. 
And that became major market for us. Right. Now, I got to ask you this. When when the switch over, I was there for there both sides the of the format, happened, yeah. right? To progressive. Okay, so what wasn't there the worry? I, 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 this is my assumption. Well, what's going to happen with our advertisers? You know, are they going to evaporate? Did any, no. anybody walk? Uh, was it a rebuilding? They, they wow. actually embraced it. You know, well, first of all, the clubs loved it because no one was getting to getting the, the people right. in the doors of the club. Like Charlie Greco and Tony Greco from the Malibu. I mean, they loved us because we would pack the right. place. The place would hold 2,200 people. I'd spend there every Saturday night. I had beer bottles falling on my turntables. It was crazy. You know, I mean, people were driving from Brooklyn to the Malibu. They yeah. were driving from New Jersey to the Malibu. And then you had Paris, New York. You had 007, Spies, Spit. I mean, you think about all the clubs that are being celebrated in the Hall of Fame, right? Uncle I Sam's. Mean, and then things changed, yep. I think, when AIDS hit, when drinking and driving became a real serious. It was always an issue, but they started cracking down. Things started to change towards the late early, you know, to early 90s, I think, at that point. But the advertisers loved it because... We would show up as DJs and do appearances, and people would show up just to talk music. They only wanted to talk music. You know, take some wow. photos, but, you know, it right, was all right. about the music. Everything was about the music. Yeah, there was also that move, I think, from the 70s into the 80s, where it mm. went from singer-songwriters in the 70s to more of club music. And at least I, my, my personal experience was... Uh, going to see a band in a local bar to all of a sudden now there are these you, you know the OBI and all these places which hey if you want to meet somebody you're going there uh, to meet somebody and you know everything changed on Long Island and then the other thing happened mm -hmm. is the drinking age changed <laughs> my poor brother is a year younger than me every time he became legal he was illegal eighteen to nineteen to twenty one very quickly yeah. Yeah, it didn't it didn't stop us, but it it inhibited where we could Yeah, I mean my first night on the air was June 1, 1979, hey, we... right? So as a young DJ, I mean I we were still straddling, but we were playing the punk stuff, we were playing television, the Ramones, Talking Heads, Elvis Costello. You know, we were gravitating. Yeah. You know, people say, "Yes, we did change the format August 1, 1982. MTV was August 1, 1981." So we we had a lot of synergy okay. between the old format, the new format. And as Dennis would say, I think he said this in the movie, I think it's it's like being on two ice skates. And at some point, the legs of your ice skates start to go this way and something's got to give. Which way are you going to go? Full boat sure. or hybrid? And we went full boat. Had to. Yeah, you got to you got to jump well, in. Well, it was the market share and, too uh, because you had five I, I AOR you, was, radio stations, right? You had yeah. APP who just did this commercial-free summer. You had PLJ, BAB. I'm thinking about everything that mm. I can't even remember. All There were like five of us, right? And believe me, Bob Buckman told me at BAB, when we changed format, they were cheering because we took the, the rock element of what we did. Because I remember <laughs> interviewing Ozzy and Van Halen before we changed the format. We just handed the whole ball of wax back to them on that genre. But we, were, we knew exactly strategically where we wanted to go and be, because we couldn't survive being one of five, right? You had NEWFM, too, right. right? I'm just trying to think of the APP, PLJ, NEWFM, us, and there was one other, which escapes me. But there were five of us, right? So market share. I mean, you can only slice the pie so much. Mm. That's a business decision. Wow. Why don't we do this? Uh, 
Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, man, there's so much to talk about. We could talk for hours. Uh, hang with us, everybody. During the break, I asked Larry about his technique to interview people. And sometimes you need that little icebreaker, like, so what'd you do yesterday? You know, or what'd you do last night? Or what have you been up to? You know, or what'd you do yesterday when you were, you know, right after the show with, you know, blah, 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 blah. You try to keep it current and relevant. And just make it a little more down to earth and interesting because you got to remember, there are people like you and me. There is nothing different. Some are more arrogant. My worst interview was Frank Zappa. Oh, my God. If he didn't like the interview, he would just go, yes, yes, no, no. You know, Van Halen was interesting because that was just before I changed the format. And they were ragging on me, you know, because, you know, they they said, we're changing the format. Let the rookie do the interview. And they came (laughs) up with, you know, bottles of. They had like six. It was actually Alex Anthony and it was Alex Anthony and um, no, I'm sorry. It was Alex Van Halen and Michael Anthony. And they okay. brought up like these shakable cocktail drinks and they had a six pack of beer and they were playing the Coliseum that night. And I just started talking to them. We just talked music and it was fun. We, they were with me for about an hour. In those days, radio stations wouldn't have them because they were trashing radio stations. And mm-hmm. then they started in with me on the high school jokes. They would, And I would take it. Right. This is the fun part. They would sure. say, hey, Larry, you got a girlfriend? I said, yeah. Hey, Larry, you got a picture of your girlfriend? I said, yeah. Do you have a picture of your girlfriend naked? No. Do you want to buy one? You know, so it was like stupid <laughs> things like that. I got caught up in it. And here's the, the wildest part of that. When they left, now they're half trashed, but they're playing the Coliseum that night. They said, hey, off mic now. They We already said goodbye. Are you coming to the Coliseum to the show? I said, yeah, I'm going with a buddy. I want to see you backstage after the show. Now, this is Michael and Alex. And I said, I'll be there. And they go to walk out, and they go, wait a second. Every time we say that, we never see them after the show. And the road manager looks at me and goes, go to stage left. After the show, I'll meet you. Sure enough, the show ended. He was there wow. standing with a ba- I had to leave my buddy behind. So he yeah, well. brings me backstage. There's this whole after party. I go into the dressing room, and it's the four members of Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli wow. and me. Wow. And I'm going, holy crap. And I'm like 23 years old. You know, I'm just a kid. And then Michael and Alex see me go, you made it. Hey, you know, (laughs) and it was like, I felt like I was back in high school, you know, and and David Lee Ross said something crude to me. And, you know, Eddie was great. Valerie looked like she wanted to be anywhere but in the room because she couldn't stand David Lee Ross. Anyway, it was just a, a wonderful memory. And I'm a kid, you know, and it just all came together only because I just wanted to work at my favorite radio station. Well, you know, also you gave, what's interesting, and you do this among friends, you have, you know, self-effacing humor, you know, you knock yourself down and you have that back and forth that you go and that that creates a bond, you know, so they, all right, Larry's a regular guy. We can we can deal with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I would assume. And that's yeah. that's what you try to get across. And you're right. You keep it conversational. My experience has been, you know, I, this is strange. In the beginning, I wrote a lot of questions down. I don't write questions down anymore. I, 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 I kind of rely on my curiosity and then see where it takes, takes it, okay? Only one time, and I'm, maybe you've had this. Let me ask you this. I call it when you're, you become the dentist and you're pulling teeth. Uh, and you had that experience with um, Zappa, you know. Uh, and some, some people you just can't help <laughs> when it comes to an interview and, and – Getting through it can be a little painful. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, the thing is, I've learned about interviewing, always be a good listener. Sure. Be prepared, but roll with it. Because they'll throw you a nugget, and then you're going to take it. And, run, and that's what Howard does, right? They'll throw a nugget out, and he'll run with it. But I've also learned that they're just people. Don't talk at them. Talk with them, right? Mm. Talk to them. And I believe in the philosophy of intellectual humility because humility is a gift that some people have and some people don't. I've, I've worked with egotistical DJs in my life, mm -hmm. which there have been program directors that have said to them, look, you are a dime a dozen. You are replaceable. There is no HR, right? I can replace you or I can change the format today and everyone's out of a job and there's nothing HR can do about it. And that's the part about radio I, think, I don't think people really understand that your talent can be expendable, which is why I went into the business world for a period of time, too, but I maintained myself on Sirius XM. So humility, I think, is the key. Never get full of yourself, and just keep in mind it's the artist, it's the music, it's the listeners, it's not you, the DJ. Right. right. That's and important. I, yeah, and I, 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 to, to, to be very uh, uh, honest, you know, I've seen myself, as I put together the show and post, man, I actually spoke way too much and I've cut things out where I'm telling some superfluous story about some something. And I'm like, why did I do that? And, and I try to set that stage, that foundation of, Hey, it's about you. It's about what you want to talk about and giving a platform where people can get to know you and your music at the same time. And I think that's where the curiosity can really uh, work well for an artist, you know? So, yeah, well, I've done the same thing as you because you're a fan. I'm a fan, and you get caught up in the fandom of, oh, my God, I'm interviewing Ozzy, right? Now, Ozzy was actually not drinking. He was actually, he had been kicked out of Black Sabbath, which, of course, you know, I said to him, so what was it like at the end of Sabbath? He goes, it was a bloody canker, like a canker sore. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about the, you know, the people that have upside down crosses and stuff like that with him. And he goes, I don't know where these people come from, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I've had fun with it, but I also have to go, sometimes I go, oh, my God, I'm interviewing Van Halen. I'm interviewing Ozzy. You know, I'm interviewing you, too. And by the way, you, too, they remembered yeah. LIR. And they came up and did a serious oh, XM right. town hall. And I remember Steve Leeds, great guy. He's the VP of talent there, brought me into the green room. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. with the four of them. Okay. And the edge looks at me and said, how early did you play us? I said, well, we played Boy was an import, but we played this little single called 11 O'Clock TikTok, and his eyes opened up like he had forgotten about the song. And then mm -hmm. I, I mentioned Malibu, December 1981, final date, October tour, you know, where they ran out of songs that played I Will Follow a second time, wow. you know, which is not, if you go to the set list, it's not recorded. It was recorded as like song number eight of the set um, and things like that. And, and, I remember Bono giving me this hug like, I mean, I, I get watery in the eyes thinking about it was just the thank you hug. Like, thank yeah. you. We never forgot where we came from. And you guys were there. And that's why Paul McGinnis, the manager of you 2 did the whole interview with Dennis and Ellen in the movie. Because right. he said, you guys were there. N.E.W. would try to break. And N.E.W. had great call letters, right? N.E.W. Sure. knew, knew music. And they didn't. They could have captured that and ran with it as a New York signal with 50,000 watts of power, but they didn't. And that's okay. That was a business decision. But they that's the thing. The artists don't forget. Right. That is the amazing thing. And being on Sirius and knowing the platform.
because the satellite actually goes from Canada to Mexico, Costa Rica, the Caribbean, the 48 states. You throw in the app. I mean, I have people listening all over the world in sure, different sure. different time zones. So I got to always think about that. And here I am in Massapequa Park being humble. <laughs> exactly. In fact, didn't, oh didn't Bono mention, mentioned uh, LIR right from the uh, the stage, I think, at the Coliseum, right? At the Coliseum, which is why they put in the movie. Yeah, because that was on the War album. And they remember the Malibu. That show at the Malibu is the biggest bootleg of all. I mean, wow. that show has been bootlegged to death. It was actually December 13th, 1981. I was there, and it was packed. And it was a great show. And the band was a little tipsy. It was the last night of the tour, and but they were awesome. Wow. And that tape is out there. If you can find it, you'll know it. It was a great show. So, so, so back... I'm sorry, I cut you off there. No, go ahead. So back in the day, you worked the radio, but you also did a radio show from the club. So, man, you can mm -hmm. see the audience reaction of what's really hitting for them uh, and say, wow, this, this, this is really, they're feeling this. Fast forward to today. Oh, yeah, it was like a focus group. Because if I put on Just Can't Get Enough by Depeche Mode and mm -hmm. I see the floor light up, and it's amazing, people would dance to Blister in the Sun. Violent Femmes, they would dance to Sanctuary by the Cult. It's like as soon as the song hit, it was like this scream would go through the club. It was a focus group. It really was nothing more than a musical focus group. When I put on Pump Up the Volume, no one knew who this art Mars, Pump Up the Volume. Right. And it, be, it went to number one. So we were we were breaking it before it became popular, you know? And that's what we wanted to be known for, the people that were breaking the new music that were future hits. And when they became hits, you know what the little trick was there? We played the dance mix of it when people were playing the single. <laughs> uh, we were playing the different version of the song that was a lot more hip than when they were playing, you know, like Sweet Dreams when, you know, from Eurythmics. We'd play the right, remix. Right. Yep, yep. That's how we got around it. So now, how in your show, you pick your own music for your show, I would assume? How, yeah. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you do your research for that? What's your, um, what's, how do you approach it today? Is, is, is well, it's funny, you know, so Lori Majewski does a show called Less for Less, and she is, um, she is off for the next six weeks, so I volunteered to do three of her shows. So I'm doing a show this Saturday, and I, you know, knowing the show probably will air afterwards, but it's on demand for 10 days. I'm doing a show called First Wave Nuggets, and what I'm doing is playing songs that almost like when Lenny Kay did the Nuggets album, these lost singles that people forgot about, okay. I'm really going deep. Like, I'm playing, like, Prefab Sprout, at the Blue Nile out of Scotland. I'm playing Twilight from YouTube. I'm playing stuff that people go, holy crap, I forgot about that song. Like, the Bell Stars doing World Domination. You know, mm -hmm. songs that you may have heard in the clubs and go, oh, I remember that song. So that's an example of a, a show that I'm putting together because I'm just formulating in advance what I want to play, like the 14 songs in one hour, because I only get 14 songs, basically, depending on the length. Could be 12, could be 15. So I'm just, actually, I'm doing that right now. I'm thinking about what I want to do on Saturday for First Wave Nuggets. So that's so kind of an example of me being a kid in a candy store or a kid in a musical candy store, where I'm just thinking about, oh, my God, what about this one? It's like when you first discovered YouTube, like you couldn't get enough of it. Right. You said, what about this band? What about this band? Right? Or Napster, right? You were like pulling stuff down left and right because you said, does no, this exist? That, that can't prove it. <laughs> yeah, can't prove it. You can't prove it. <laughs> can't prove it. So, But I'm saying that that's, that's the joy 
of programming your own show. Now, are you doing it more from a historical perspective or or like are you uh, looking for post-punk bands today that uh, that have music out? A mix of both. You know, I mean, I always love the post-punk side, you know, with Gang of Four, Ramones, Clash, you know, mm-hmm. um, television. I mean, I, I purposely play one song from the B-52s. I play a, a track that's rarely played because this is it. This is their farewell tour. Oh. I think they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, my opinion. Sure. Uh, they are the greatest party band. I I've, I can I challenge anybody to find me a band that duplicates that sound. Take away Barbie and the Kens, just a gigolo. But, <laughs> I mean, mm. who could possibly – if you didn't have the B-52s, where, where would you have Planet Claire, Love Shack, I mean, you go down the line, Planet Z, Rome, you know, Song for a Future right. Generation. You, can't go, it's you like, can't go to a wedding today where their song is not played, one of their songs. Right, and you see Grandma and Grandpa dancing the Love Shack, you're like, ugh, that wasn't meant for them. <laughs> it was meant for I us. I can't unsee that. And by Thanks, the way, the Grandma. band didn't think that was going to be a hit. They did it as a goof. Really? That song was a complete, yeah, they didn't think it was going to be a hit. It became a hit. Wow. <laughs> and, and you know what's interesting? They really, they... They didn't tag themselves to a particular genre. You know, their yeah. music is their music, you know, from southern Georgia. You know, uh, it's just kind of unique. I think that's that's really amazing. Hey, let's do this. Anything let's just went. take another quick quick yeah. break, and we'll be right back with Larry Duck Dunn. Hang with us, everybody. At the Long Island Sound, we're much more than a podcast. We're building a community. Please go to gigdestiny.com, check out all our social media links, subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast, please comment, call the listener line, tell us what you think, what questions we should ask, who we should have on the show, and most of all, we thank you for your generous support, and remember, support the artists who are guests on the show. Now back to the podcast. Back with Larry the Duck Dunn, and Larry, I tell you, you've been a font of information, thanks for all your insights, you know, you've got all this experience working in all this different media, you know, from uh, magazines to, uh, well, kind of give me, give me a quick overview of the different places you've been, because I, I think that'd be interesting to our audience. Yeah, I, when I left WDRE in 1991, I went full-time into the publishing industry. Uh, I worked for Cap City's ABC, which was bought by Disney. Disney sold us off to Reed Elsevier. Reed Elsevier owns LexisNexis. They own all the Elsevier science books when you go to med school. They own Comic-Con. They started oh, wow. Comic-Con with Reed Exhibition. So I, I was a publisher with them uh, for 19 years. And in the later part of the years, I was the group publisher of multi-channel news, broadcasting, cable, and video business. Worked on Variety for five years. Mm. Then was hired to go to Cablevision to run Newsday on the sales side as senior vice president for seven years and also straddled Cablevision media sales. And then um, left after Altice took over and went to Island Federal, where I'm currently as a senior director of sales and membership experience on the banking side. So I'm having fun. It's a long road from LIR, which stood for low-income radio. <laughs> and we used to say it on the air, too. Well, you, you <laughs> Not started... that management appreciated it, but it was all about the beer at that point, right? Well, that, that's where you, you're an expert in humility because you come from humble beginnings yeah. in the radio business. So, mm-hmm. hey, I got, a, I got a question for you. Where do you see the newspaper business? Is, is it dead? Is it gone? No, I think print will always survive. I think that there will be newspapers that won't evolve into a digital event print format. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what we tried to do at Newsday was to evolve into more events and digital and video. And, you know, because we're owned by Cablevision, 
We had synergy with News 12. Pat Dolan is doing a great job. He owns Newsday now. He mm-hmm. bought it from Altice. And, you know, he's trying to make Newsday into a multimedia company. And I think he's he's succeeding greatly in that. And I think that, you know, I, I cheer Pat on. I used to, you know, be in monthly meetings with Pat, you know, um, working for Jim and Kristen. Um, it was a great time for me. I learned a lot. Um, it was an easy transition being the publisher of magazines that oversaw the cable industry and the broadcast and satellite side. So I knew that side of it. There's a lot of knowledge I have um, from those days, having editors, reporters, journalists reporting into me. But, you know, it's called church and state, right? So I was managing mm-hmm. the advertising side, managing the editorial side, and the publisher is the only one that can straddle both sides. And it was okay. a great experience. I learned a lot. And... Um, yeah, I learned a lot from the Dolan family, too. Yeah, I, about I, I've, uh, Newsday and how it's morphing mm-hmm. into this multi-segmented uh, media company, not just a, a print newspaper. And, you know, I've been listening to the news and uh, hearing different reporters lament on the lack of local news coverage because of so many papers going under. Uh, and, you know, it might even tie into, you know, the guy who was just uh, – Voted into Congress, uh, Santos, who uh, fabricated a lot of his or all of his career. How did they, they miss said, that? <laughs> yeah, they said if they they said if you know local news was on top of this, it might have come out a lot sooner. Hmm. So I'm just curious on your take on that. I know it's off the music path, but since you're a media mogul, I want to get your opinion on it, <laughs> your take on it. Well, I think Newsday does a great job of investigative journalism, and sometimes there are facts you just can't get to. I mean, you're not going to see, I think, a lot of investigative journalism, you know, at the Daily News, the New York Post, but I think the New York Times and with Newsday you would. I know that when I was in radio, when they deregulated news, right, that was in the 80s, you had a, we had a newsroom of four news anchors. Mm-hmm. We went to one overnight, literally, wow. because when they deregulated it, with the FCC, it really did harm, I think, to newsrooms in general. Mm-hmm. You'll always have eyewitness news and you'll always have the local, you know, journalistic reporters in New York. But if you remember, News 12 was started because when they did the media watch, right, how much news was focused on Long Island at Eyewitness News? It was probably 1% of all the content that they broadcast in a year. That's, that was the whole reason News 12 was created. Right. So that they could do and focus on Long Island strategically, journalistically, and invest in being an investigative reporter because you weren't going to get it from the New York stations. And I'm sure you could say the same about New Jersey and Connecticut from the stations. But Long Island is New York, and no one was covering it until News 12 came along in the mid-'80s. And that's mm-hmm. when we lost people like Carol Silva. But she jumped you know, to News 12 wisely. You know, LIR was going to go under eventually anyway. And News 12 did that whole feature when LIR went off the air. So I think it is true, I think, with the collapse of budgets overall and the fact that it takes talent to investigate from a journalistic point of view, that costs money. But I I can tell you, having worked at Newsday, there was always a large financial commitment put behind the newsroom. That was the one thing that was their anchor, was the fact that no one else could go deeper than News 12 and Newsday. That was just a fact. So... The sad thing is that deregulation started the beginning of the downturn of the financial commitment into the newsroom. The good news is you still have, thank God, 
Newsday and News 12 still covering Long Island and digging in. Right. Well, and if you look at, you know, I think about every iPhone, every phone that's out there is its own. Everyone's a reporter. Everyone's a reporter, <laughs> potential reporter. Yeah. And if you look at the news today as opposed to 20 years ago, we're using that footage from somebody's iPhone that caught an incident or what have you uh, and plugging it in. And then all the different sources of news. I mean, people are getting their news off Instagram and TikTok, you know. Right, and, and technology is driven. iPhones have great broadcast quality. I've used in an emergency when my Internet's gone down, you know, I've used my voice recorder on my iPhone, and you wouldn't know the difference between that and this microphone. Right, right. What's interesting, of the artists that I've sp spoken to over the past year, and I see a generational gap, to be honest with you, great musicians but haven't grasped the social media aspect of things, uh, you know, you, you can't make money in music unless you're going out gigging or you're selling merchandise or you're on Twitch with a show on a Monday night uh, doing that. So I see that gap. But then I've seen some younger, um, and I have one example, the Como brothers. Unbelievable. These, the guys remind me of the Everly brothers, okay? And they've done these different videos, and I'm like, who does that? Oh, this is Tatiana, my fiance, does it on her iPhone. And it's shocking how great it is, you know. And they're putting up every couple of days. I mean, they're writing songs like Ice Cream Cones, man. Every couple of weeks there's a new song coming out. And I hear them doing a plug for them. I have no financial interest. But I just find it interesting on how people get their music out and how they need to be heard, whether it's locally and could be internationally too, right? On social media, it's interesting. Right. Well, that's why social media becomes important because everything goes viral so quickly. Right. And think about the artists that have grown just because of social media, because those are the platforms that are driving it. Word of mouth, right? Interest. And it multiplies quickly, really quickly. Yep. More so than a lot of other platforms. Yep. And that's we're, how you have to get the word out yeah, because it's hard. One of the pioneers is Justin Bieber. I can't believe I'm talking about yeah. Justin Bieber on my podcast, but... He was uh, a young YouTube sensation, and then he got recognized, and he had talent, and has talent, I guess. Uh, and that's the end of that story, so go figure that out. <laughs> so as with everything else, there's a lot more change that is, is coming upon us, but it's uh, the music industry. As I'm a, I'm a sidecar of a sidecar in this with a podcast, but let me tell you, it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of interesting people like yourself out there. Uh, sharing the knowledge. I, but I do want to end on this, and I do want to talk about um, uh, the Long Island Music and Entertainment Hall of Fame, which you're a – what the heck is a fourth vice chair? Does that mean you sit in the back? <laughs> so I'm a vice chairman of the board. There's four of us. So, okay. um, But, you know, you, know you, you look at Norm Preslin and, and you know, Jim Faith. You, know, you look at the founders, where it all began. It really began with them. You know, I'm just proud to be on the board of directors. Right, right. So, so we'll do a shameless plug for them. They're in Stony Brook. They're open, uh, I think, Wednesday through Sunday from like 12 to 5, and they're doing something Correct. Really 99 Main Street. 99 <laughs> Main Street, and they're doing something interesting where they're inviting artists in to play in, in the stage that they have there, and that's really starting to mm -hmm. drive some uh, good attention. So uh, Yeah, we just did comedy, too. That was packed. That was a lot really? of fun. Really? Yeah. So how did you Yeah, because the entertainment portion of it, too, it's Long Island Music and Entertainment Hall of Fame. So, you know, so the you're, comedians, you're testing out the your, actors, uh, the musicians. You're testing your stand-up uh, comedy act, finally? No, no, no. I could never do <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
That's when you feel naked on a stage. Comedy, I could never do that. I, I'm just, I would be a victim. I would never subject myself to that. I hear you. I can't even well, pull that off. Well, Larry, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for, for the, the great conversation and, and uh, your insights on the business and on interviewing. It really uh, validated a few things and it's helped me out. So uh, I look forward to talking to you again and seeing you out there on Long Island. Thank you, Steve. Keep up the great work you're doing on the Long Island Sound. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, brother. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Till next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace.